Well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, we're starting to do a series for the next couple of weeks called Church 101. This is a, a study on the basics of church governance, or what's called polity. And I know you guys are terribly excited. Um, but we will see the relevance of this this morning, and hopefully you'll be jumping and leaping as you leave today like you're a bunch of charismatics, all right? So uh, we're going to be in two texts today. The first is Psalm 115, and we're going to read verses 1 through 8, okay? And then uh, I'll guide us to our next text as we go. It'll be behind me on the screen in my translation as well. For the first text, just to make sure you're nice and confused, I'm going to read from the New American Standard, and from the second text, I'm going to read from the English Standard, okay? Uh, but it'll be behind me on the screen in my translation for you to follow along there. So if you have it, say, I have it. All right, let's, uh, let's read Psalm 115, verses 1 through 8. The Holy Spirit says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Why should the nation say, where now is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, they cannot speak. They have eyes, they cannot see. They have ears, they cannot hear. They have noses, they cannot smell. They have hands, they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. Amen. This is God's word, and may God write its eternal truths on all of our hearts. There are too many options. I don't know what to choose. Have you ever had this thought or a similar one when you were shopping or things like this? This is a very first word complaint, first world complaint, is it not? But more than at any time in history, we have the power to choose, yes, among more options than ever before and conceivably every part of life. Yes? When you're choosing what to eat, you have a host of restaurants and fast food joints you could choose from, or you could go to the store and there are thousands and thousands of different combinations that you could cook for yourself. If you want to buy new pants, you could go to the store that you want to go to, and then once you get there, you're confronted with dozens and dozens of choices. And if they don't have what you're looking for, what can you do? Just go to a different store. You just choose a different store. Even buying cereal can be overwhelming choice as you're faced with literally a whole aisle dedicated just to cereal. Hundreds of different brands and flavors. But it doesn't stop there, of course. Now there are dozens of streaming services that you could choose from. And when you finally decide on which one you might watch something on, you're faced with more choices than ever on what to watch. So you endlessly scroll for so long that if you're like me, you decide, you know what, I don't want to watch anything at all anymore. Open a music app on your phone, and you have every song ever released to choose from. Choices are everywhere. It's almost overwhelming, isn't it? I think of an episode of the show The Simpsons when their town Springfield had a new big box store open called Monstro Mart, and it had products all the way from floor to ceiling, and the tagline for the store right there on the storefront said, where shopping is a baffling ordeal. That seems truer than ever, doesn't it? Part of what it means to be American 
is choice, is it not? There is no end to our customization and molding every area of our life just the way we want. No one in this room has a house that looks exactly like someone else in this room. No one has living rooms that are carbon copies of one another. No one in here has the exact same wardrobe. Even our smartphones are customizable down to the last detail. This being the case, all of our psyches have been shaped to approach all of life in a way of the old Burger King slogan, I should have it my way. We have choices everywhere in all facets of our lives. And so we expect it how often, all the time, and in what places, in all the places. And this really is fine. Yes, when, when it comes to much of our lives, we get to choose and we should. But there are inevitable consequences, don't you think? So my question in light of these realities is this. Should the church in the midst of a world of customizable choices be like that too? Is the church, what it does, how it's organized and governed, simply be another thing we can customize in a long line of customizable things in our lives? Or is the church unique? Is the church unique among the relationships in our lives and in our world in that we're not free to customize it as we wish? Should something else regulate how we approach and order the church? Is the church an organism unlike anything else in our lives and world? And thus, our task is to not do with it as we wish, but align with the vision of its founder and sustainer. What if the church is not intended to be another customizable option among all our customizable options, but is to be ruled, shaped, ordered, and informed by and for the Lord Jesus Christ. Oz Guinness makes this observation on this topic. He said profoundly, choice, unabound, autonomous, subjective, sovereign individual choice is the playboy king of consumer land. And with comfort and convenience as his closest courtiers and cronies, he now rules much of life. Authority and obedience are therefore banished together. They are the unwelcome spoil sports whose entry might ruin the fantasy game of infinite choices. The result, he says, is no surprise, a grave crisis of authority within the church and a rash of positions and interpretations that in any clear thinking generation would be frankly seen as the rejection of the authority of Jesus and the scriptures as they are. This is what we'll explore this morning in this short series on the basis of church governance or polity. Now imagine that when one hears that there will be a sermon series on church polity. The immediate response might be more a yawn than a backflip. You might think, what does polity have to do with me? Or think, can't we just either do what we've always done or come up with something ourselves? But what we'll see is that we do not have to come up with something ourselves, like a panicked person before thousands of different choices, and that polity has everything to do with you. Because we as a church have a responsibility to follow and obey the word of our Lord. And our Lord and his word are not silent on this topic. I will also be tempted to think that it's a relatively unimportant topic. Aren't there other things more important, more urgent, that we could be talking about? John L. Dagg was one of the most influential Baptist voices in the 19th century, and he wrote extensively on Baptist polity, during his time as president of Mercer University in Macon. And he wrote a lot on Baptist polity, and he says, 
of the question of the importance of this topic, he wrote this. Church order and the ceremonial of religion are less important than a new heart. And in the view of some, any laborious investigation of questions respecting them may appear to be needless and unprofitable. But we know from the Holy Scriptures that Christ gave commands on this subject, and we cannot refuse to obey. Love prompts our obedience, and love prompts also the search which may be necessary to attain his will. Let us, therefore, he says, prosecute the investigation which are before us with a fervent prayer that the Holy Spirit who guides into all truth may assist us to learn the will of him whom we supremely love and adore. The topic of polity is hugely important. It has massive implications for the health and faithfulness of a church and its guarding of the gospel. As Jonathan Lehman said, Christ's authority is part and parcel of the gospel, which means church order is an outgrowth of the Christian faith. Further, as Dag noted, the Bible has a lot to say on the topic of church governance and what the church is to be and do. So it was a topic important enough for the Holy Spirit to include in the New Testament. So it must be a matter important to the church, and it should, right? Jesus is founder and head of the church, cares deeply for her. You agree on this? And has a relationship to her that he doesn't have with any other institution or group. So it matters to him how the church looks and what the church does, and he doesn't leave us guessing, thank God, in those regards. And if it matters to Jesus, it should matter to who? To us. And so we'll see in this short series that Scripture's vision, you might want to write this down, okay? Scripture's vision for how a church should be ordered can be summarized thusly. Jesus ruled, elder led, deacon served, congregationally accountable. Let me say it again. Jesus ruled, elder led, deacon served, congregationally accountable or affirmed. So we'll briefly look at the first one today. Our topic will be Jesus ruled today, all right? From two texts. And so the first one, let's consider Psalm 115, 1 through 8. Now, you might look at this passage and think that it has, doesn't have much to tell us about church and polity, but it does, and here's why. Because this psalm reminds us that the church exists for the glory of God, and the God we glorify is a God who speaks. Let me say that again. This psalm reminds us that the church exists for the glory of God, and the God we glorify is a God who speaks. That's what we must see from this text. Look how it begins in verse 1, with a petition. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. You see that repetition? Not to us, not to us. (laughs) The glory of the Lord is the purpose for both our lives as created beings and the purpose of the church. The Westminster Catechism opens with this question. What is the chief end or purpose of man? And the answer is, the chief purpose of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This is the purpose of our lives, as people made in God's image, and it's the point and purpose of the church. Why does the psalmist repeat, not to us, You know why, don't you? Because our human inclination when it comes to glory is to do what? To procure it for ourselves. 
to point to ourselves, to make much of ourselves, to seek glory for ourselves. But the prayer of the psalmist, and what our prayer should be too, is to defer, divert and deflect glory, to point away from ourselves towards the Lord. Why? He tells us, doesn't he? Because he's the only one who truly deserves it. Unlike us and unlike idols, he is, look, verse 1, full of loving kindness, full of faithful covenantal love, and he's the originator and embodiment of truth. He deserves all the glory that there is, and so we exist as a people and a church for the glory and renown of Jesus Christ. This is the main purpose of the existence of the church, the glory of the Lord. Not the glory of the people, the glory of the Lord. If we fail to do this, we might as well not exist, right? But we'd just be another weird, vaguely religious civic or social club and not the peculiar body of the Lord Jesus. Now you say, obviously, the church exists for God's glory. Obviously, that should be our aim. But is it obvious? I think we underestimate how easy it is to misaim on this point. I think we fail to realize how easy and gradual it is to take something intended for the worship of God and make that thing our focus. How many countless church leaders have spent hours in meetings asking how to placate customers rather than on what does the Bible say? How many times have things meant for God's glory, like music, Sunday school, programs, and structures, means of worship become means and become ends to themselves. How often have you, we wondered how to make human beings satisfied rather than asking, how does God say to glorify him? How often have you been in an ugly business meeting where Jesus wasn't what was on everyone's mind and tongue or wasn't mentioned at all? You see how easy and subtle all this is? You see how you can start even with the right motives and slip into the main focus being how can I be appeased or how can they be placated? And God begins to be more and more left out of the equation. As Sky Jathani said, in a consumer culture, the customer, not Christ, is king. This must not be so, but it's subtle, easy thing to slip into. I think of the uh, legend of William Tell. Do you guys know the legend of William Tell? According to a legend, a tyrant came to rule over this village, and his name was Gessler. Well, Gessler set up a pole in the town square, and he put his hat on it. And he gave an order that every man must come and bow before it. Well, a man named William Tell, he refused to bow to this silly hat and was promptly arrested. Well, Gessler knew that Tell was an expert with the crossbow, and he struck a deal with him. If Tell could shoot an apple off the top of his own son's head, see, now it's familiar to you, right? Gessler would set him free. See, Gessler was thinking that if Tell missed, he'd, he'd be ruined by the very thing he was known for. So they set it up, and Tell let the arrow fly, and it was, of course, perfectly on target, hitting the apple and leaving his son unharmed. This story is somewhat familiar with people, and even if they don't know much about Tell, they do know that if he had misaimed even a little, the results would be fatal. Yes? Sam Sorum says this of the story that, and what it can teach us about worship of God. He says, I want to suggest that 
much like tell, if the arrow of our adoration is even slightly off target, the results can be disastrous. If our worship is not fixed and focused on the triune God of Scripture alone, what we are doing is not only foolish but fatal, not only dumb but deadly. This is why the prayer, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but your name give glory so urgent and so necessary. God gets the glory and he refuses to share it with anyone. It can't be God gets 50% of the glory and I'll get the other 50. It can't be God gets 75%, we get 25. It can't even be God gets 99% of the glory and we get 1%. It must be all God. 100% of the church's focus to his glory alone. Worship of God is no secondary matter, is it? But now here's one of the beautiful things about how we worship God and how we approach God and how we order the institution that God inhabits in a special way, unlike any other institution in the world, the church. We don't have to guess how to worship him or how to function as a body because he is a God who speaks. Do you see what it says in verses four through eight? The psalmist is comparing God to the idols of the surrounding nation. In verse 2, the surrounding nations, they look at Israel, and they don't see Israel's God. right? Like They don't see a physical statue that Israel calls God, and they ask, where is your God? And what's the answer? You see it? Our God is in heaven. What? He does whatever he wants. See, in other words, our God is not a statue that we need to carry to and fro throughout the land. He's too glorious and holy to be seen by human eyes. He's in heaven. He does whatever he wants. What are their gods like? They're made out of silver and gold. They're made out of human hands. They're made by people. Isn't this, isn't this wacky? People make them, and they turn around and do what? Worship them. <laughs> that sounds silly, doesn't it? But then you look at our society. We worship stuff made by human hands all the time. Little idols are everywhere. In fact, you'd go to a shrine that holds 92,000 worshipers in Athens this Saturday if you wanted to. But the psalmist is stressing, see, you didn't find that funny because you know it's true. But the psalmist is stressing how absurd it is to worship these idols while asking God's people, where's your God? But because the idol worshiper can't conceive of a God so transcendently holy and glorious that he's beyond human construction. I think of Isaiah. There's a great passage in Isaiah. He showed the absurdity of the idol. He says, that, he says, if you want to make an idol, you'll make a God. You go and you plant a seed for a tree to come, and then a rain, the rain comes, it makes it grow, it gets big enough, you go you, with your axe, you chop it down, right? And then you cut it in half, and one half, you chop it up a little further, and you make a fire on it, and then a fire with it. And then that fire, you break you bake bread and warm yourself, but then the other half, you carve a figurine, and then you worship that figurine. You fall down before it, and you say, deliver me, for you are my God. Isaiah is asking, how in the world can a piece of wood save you when so much effort was exerted by you to construct the thing, plus half of it was burnt up in a fire? If you toss the idol in the same fire... Guess what would happen to it? It'd get burned up too, kindled by the wood it came from. That's some God. 
The psalmist shows the same kind of absurdity. Your God that you constructed with your hands, they have mouths, but what? Can't speak. You made a mouth for it. You drew a little mouth on it. You carved a little mouth in it, but it has not opened it one time, and it will not open it in the future. You made eyes for it. It doesn't see anything. It never will. You, you carved ears, but it will never hear you. You made it a nose, but it can't smell the incense and the offerings that you give it. It has hands. It can't touch you. It has feet. It can't walk anywhere. You have to pick it up and carry it. How's the Lord different? He does all the things that idols only pretend to do. The idols are pathetic parody. They can't do whatever they please. But Yahweh can. He's at the mercy, yes, of no one and nothing. The idols are at the mercy of their constructors. The idols have an appearance that they could see, but with their eyes because you constructed it with your hands. And their appearance has eyes, nose, mouth, hands, ears, and feet, but it can do nothing with them. No touching, no seeing, no smelling or hearing or walking. But the Lord, well, you can't see him because he's in heaven, because he's transcendently holy creator and sustainer of all things. He has eyes. He can see everything you do and how you approach worshiping him. Further, unlike the idols, he remembers. You see that? He perceives, and he can help those who cry for aid. Idols can't do that. The Lord has ears and can hear those cries. He has ears are always attentive for the downcast and the broken and desperate. He also, and this is important for our purpose this morning, he speaks. Idols can't speak. They can't reveal truth or communicate any wisdom. They can't see whether you disobey or not. Well, the Lord, he speaks, he reveals truth, and he can see whether or not people obey him. Nothing escapes his watchful eyes. See, the idolaters, they have to guess what they need to do to please their gods. It's like trial and error. What misery is that? Remember the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel? They had to guess what it would take for them to get Baal to consume their bull. You remember that? That they, they cried out. They prayed they danced, they chanted, they started cutting themselves with blades. Nothing works because that's how idols are. You don't know what they want. And so you have to guess in order to appease them. And so how do you know how to obey and how do you know if you're disobeying? You don't. But God is a God who speaks. And so we don't have to guess how we ought to worship him and how his church ought to look. He has given us his word. And his word tells us truth that comes from him and instructions on how to approach this holy and awesome God. This is not the kind of God you want to casually guess how to approach. Thankfully, we don't have to guess. Sam Waldron, in his excellent book, summarized it this way. If the church worshipped a dead idol, or if the church gathered in the name of a mere mortal, men might dare to dominate or regulate its gatherings. Since, however, the church is the church of the living God, he demands that his presence should be acknowledged and made the central act attraction of its gathering. He is alive. He has a mouth and he can speak. He demands that his word be proclaimed and heard in his gatherings. He has ears. Thus, he demands that all that is said be said with the thought that God is listening. He demands as well that his people praise and pray in spirit and in truth, remembering that his ears accept the praise and answer the prayers. 
The living God has a nose to smell the sweet incense of true worship and also to sense the foul odor of levity and profanity and formalism in his worship. He has hands and feet which move with power and life. He demands, therefore, that the gatherings of his people be characterized by both holy fear and confident trust in his might and power. You see? God is a God who speaks, and he's a God who is so kind and gracious that he has given us his word to know both how to worship him and what the church should be and do and how it should be constructed and ordered. And since he not only speaks, but sees and hears, he knows whether or not his people obey or disobey, doesn't he? This is why Paul in 2 Timothy calls the Bible sacred scripture and says that all scripture is, you know these verses, right? All scripture is what? Breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. It's why the very next thing he does in that passage is charge Timothy to preach the word in season and out because he knows a time is coming when people will have itching ears. And they'll allow that to lead them to accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their passions who aren't following the word. Friend, when, when the question is, what are we to do as a church? What are we to do when we gather? How ought we organize ourselves in polity? What ought we prioritize and pursue? We don't have to guess, don't you see? Isn't that freeing, by the way? The word of God is sufficient for faith and practice. We worship a God who formed us, and that God is a God who speaks, and the primary means by which he does that is through the Spirit-inspired Scripture. We don't worship a deaf and dumb God who we crafted in our woodshop. We worship and serve a God who sees and hears and smells and touches sinners and walked among us and who speaks. The word is enough, which is something we must not affirm only in word, but in practice. So when you get a copy in the coming months of the proposed new bylaws, you will be tempted, you'll be tempted to ask, do I like this? Right? You'll be tempted to ask, is this what I would have written? Is this what I'm used to? Is this what we've always done? But don't you see that's the wrong place to start? The place to start is not with what do I think it is. Does this reflect what our God who speaks says in the word that he gave us that is designed to guide us and is sufficient for such things? He has a way for us to worship and follow him, and our task is to pursue what he says, not come up with our own way because the church is not my house or yours. It's God's house. Let's picture it like this. You invite me over to dinner, all right? And I show up and you say, have a seat in the living room. We're going to go finish getting everything ready in the kitchen and dining room, okay? So you leave me alone in your living room. And a few minutes later, you come back and I rearranged all the furniture. All the pictures are in different places, okay? And I put one of me up there, okay? with my dope professorial jacket on, okay? And so <laughs> you come back, everything's different. What would you think of that? Who am I 
to rearrange the furniture in your house. That's what you would think. What arrogance, you'd think. What presumption to think you could come into my house and rearrange the furniture. Now, what do you think God thinks when we mortals take it upon ourselves to rearrange the furniture, as it were, in his house? When he has a way that he designed for things to be arranged. God is a God who speaks. He has established the church. He has told us that what he told us what it looks like, and ours is to follow his word, not our own inclinations. Because you see that God not only speaks and gave us his word, but he also decided who would be the ruler of the church, didn't he? Turn with me to our second text, and let's look at that. Colossians. Colossians in chapter 1. And then once you get to Colossians chapter 1, would you jump down to verse 15? We're going to read verses 15 through 18, and I believe it'll be behind me on the screen. I just, this is one of the most beautiful texts in all the Bible. I just want you to soak it in when we read this together, okay? Are you guys there? Let's read Colossians 1, verse 15. The Holy Spirit says of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him, and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And underline this he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Underline this too that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of of his cross. This is one of the most beautiful portions of scripture there is. It's very one of the very first Christian hymns. And Paul starts the hymn by saying that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Jesus is the exact image of God, bearing in his person every single attribute and quality that God possesses. If you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. And this is especially profound, isn't it, in light of what we just read in Psalm 115? Because while the idols have no hands and no feet with which to move or touch people, the God of Psalm 115, who you couldn't see with your eyes before, who was in heaven doing whatever he pleased, that God heard the cries of the people and had seen their plight with his eyes, and so he condescended. This is that what he's telling us? He condescended. He took on flesh. He became visible. What did he do? He touched people. He walked among sinners. He bore their iniquities in his body on the tree. Let's think about this idea of Jesus being the image of the invisible God for a minute. If you were in the Roman Empire during the time that Paul is writing this letter, you would see images of Caesar almost everywhere you looked. Statues bearing his name, his face on coins and on wall arts and on temples were present every city that you went to, to show you who's in charge. What Paul's saying is flying in the face of Caesar. Caesar thinks his images are everywhere, but they're just statues and pictures, right? They're just statues and pictures. 
Jesus is not merely a statue or picture of God. Jesus is everything that God is. You understand? Whatever attribute you can think of that God possesses, omnipotence, omnipresence, omniscience, Jesus possesses inequality, every single one. All things were also created through him and for him. We asked Paul, what do you mean all things? You know what Paul says? All things, everything. And if you, he's like, you know what, if you're still confused, things in heaven, things on earth, things you can see, things you cannot see whether thrones or dominions or rulers. Then he says it again for emphasis. All things were created through him and for him. Nothing that has been created was created by anyone else. Everything you see was created by Christ. Not only the material universe is what Paul's saying, but things you cannot see as well. And every power, every ruler, every authority, serves and exists and owes their existence to Christ. They serve at his good pleasure. The whole of the universe was created by him and for him, and he upholds all of it by his hand. Everything that exists is held together by Christ who sustains it with a word of his power. You woke up this morning because Jesus is Lord. There's blood pumping through your veins right now because Jesus is Lord. There's air going into your mouth and nose and into your lungs and out again because Jesus is Lord. There are molecules floating around you right now that you can't see because Jesus is Lord. Your chair is holding you up right now because Jesus is Lord. He holds all things together. But notice this too. Not only are all things created through him and sustained by him, they're created for him. Everything that you see in the world was created for Jesus. Everything was made to worship Jesus. What was created for Jesus? Everything. You know, the other day, my family and I went outside. Once it got sufficiently dark, maybe you and your family did this too, because Jupiter was going to be the closest it's been to Earth in 59 years. Did you guys see that on the news? And it won't be close, this close again for another 107 years. How close was it? Really close, okay? About 367 million miles from Earth. That's close, right? But so we went out there and we looked at it through the telescope that my brother got for Allie, and we saw it, and it was pretty cool. It, it looked like a ball of old cheese, okay? And if you missed it, don't worry. You'll just have to wait till 2129 for your next chance, okay? But you look at Jupiter, and the stars in the night sky. And you look at these spectacular images that keep being released by NASA from the James Webb Telescope, and it's discovering things in space that we never knew existed. And you can't help but ask, why? Why are they there? Like, why are there parts of space created by God that humans will never see? Why are there planets like Jupiter we'll never get to go to? You know why, don't you? Paul tells us. They're all for Jesus. There's stuff you can't see and never will. And it exists for Jesus to glorify him. Everything from the smallest molecule to the largest galaxy exists for his glory. The tiniest sea urchin, every blade of grass, 
Every grain of sand, every bee, flower, bird, elephant, mountain, ocean, star, planet, black hole, galaxy, all of it, he pre-existed, and all of it he created, and all of it he holds together, and all of it exists for him. Jonathan Edwards says that the universe is full of images of divine things as full as languages of words. Tiniest details, he said, in everything, from spiders and silkworms to rainbows and roses, all pour forth knowledge about Christ and his ways. Luther said something similar. He said, the rising sun chases away the darkness. Every morning reminds of grace and beauty and victory of Christ. Drinking water, we sense how he refreshes the thirsty. Through how freely we breathe the air, we experience God's open-handedness and so on. Everything in all of creation points to this majestic, glorious, wonderful Christ who rules sovereignly and meticulously. Nothing escapes his sight. Not a leaf. Not a raindrop. Not a bird, not a star falls without his sovereign direction or permission. Now you get all of the, get that picture and read verse 18 again. And he is the head of the body, the church. Now of all the places, this glorious Christ rules over, holds together. Where is it? that he has chosen to be a special place of his presence. What is the one place in all the galaxies, in all the world, where this creator and this sustainer has chosen to have a special attachment to? Of all the institutions, of all the dominions, and all the places that Jesus has rule over, which one does he explicitly die to purchase? and choose to dwell in their midst. Only the church. Sam Waldron again says this, the sanctity of the church means that the church is an institution, society, or organism associated with God, set apart by God in a way that no other human institution is. No other institution possesses the same close relation to God or redemptive holiness as the church. Flowing out of this peculiar association of the church, with God and church's consequent unique identity is the fact that there is a special rule by which its life is to be governed. Jesus as head, you understand, is not a haphazard picture that Paul threw together. The Holy Spirit through Paul's pen is telling us that Jesus has a special attachment to the church as its source and its ruler and its director. Without the head, what will happen to your body? Simply no life, no direction, no purpose. Dustin Bench says it like this, the church receives all of its life from Christ and has no life apart from him. They are one. As one cannot live without unremitting oxygen intake, the church cannot exist for one moment without Christ as her life. Christ is the church's ventilator, consistently filling her lungs with life-giving spiritual breath, animating her, gifting her, and empowering her. This means that we who serve in the church serve her only as Christ empowers and enables us to do so. It means that Christ imparted to the church and will continue to impart her his very life. See, this picture of head and body, it communicates intimacy, an intimate connection between Jesus and the church that you won't find anywhere else. This is because the church is not a human institution or invention. Man didn't come up with the church. There wasn't like a collection of fellows in the first century who said, let's invent a gathering and call it the church. Jesus came up with the church. 
He founded it. He died to purchase her. And he is intimately and inseparably attached to her like a head to a body or a husband to his bride. There are a lot of fine institutions that you could go and belong to, yes? There are hosts of social and civic clubs that do good work, and you could join them. You could help them. You could feel a real sense of accomplishment in helping them, but they aren't the church. Jesus isn't there in the way he is within the church. He doesn't rule there in the same way he does in the church. No organization or club or association or even nation or kingdom has been promised eternal continuance and sure victory at the end of the age like the church. She is utterly and totally unique. This means, don't you realize, that if you love Jesus, you will love his church. The two can't be separated. The Bible leaves us no option of this modern business of I love Jesus but not the church. That'd be like telling someone you love them but hate their spouse. So if you want to know how it is you feel about Jesus, how you honor Jesus, ask how you love and honor the church. They're linked. They can't be separated. This is why, you remember when Jesus confronted Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, he asked him, why are you persecuting me? It's because Jesus so identifies with the church that you do something against her, it's as if you're doing it against the Lord himself. And since Jesus is present in a special way and he alone is her head, then that means we must submit to his rule. The church gets its marching orders not from human ingenuity, not from creativity, not from pragmatism or an attempt to mimic the world and its structures or borrow from culture, but from its head, the one and only sustainer and creator of the universe. See what Paul says in the back half of verse 18? Jesus is the beginning the firstborn from out of the dead. And what? That what? In everything, he might be preeminent. Then in what? what then what? He might be preeminent? In some things? In a few things? That in all things, he might have first place. But don't you see? Don't you see that Christ won't have preeminence in this church unless he is preeminent in all of our lives? Don't you see that? If we sing and say that Christ is all while we're here for a few hours a week only to go out and live as if we're preeminent for the remainder 160 plus hours, it won't be long. It won't be long before he isn't preeminent in here either. Why? Because we will, like we said at the beginning, assume our kingship in our lives should spill over into the church. And you can't see Christ as preeminent my brother, if you want to remain the king of your life. You can't see Christ as preeminent, my sister, if you want to remain the queen of your life. He must have first place in our lives if he is going to have first place in our church. Because if you're living for yourself and for your glory and for your renown and for your comfort, for you to have first place in your day-to-day -day life, then when you come into the church, you'll wonder why Jesus should have preeminence at all. You wonder why we should go by his word and not pragmatism. You'll wonder why he should be the focus. Why can't he scooch over and share the spotlight? You'll wonder why it's such a big deal if we were divided over petty preferences. Since we get our way everywhere else, shouldn't it be like that in the church? You see? 
you, friend, must place Christ at the preeminent place in your life. And we as a church must do the same. He is ruler. He is head. He is husband. He's the one who purchased the church with his blood. You see what it says in verse 20? What's we'll it say in verse 20? Through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I've told you before, I've read every business meeting minute since 1889 of this church. Can you imagine? There's one thing you know I couldn't find. One person who died to purchase her. Because only Christ has died to purchase First Baptist Cordia. All other rulers make peace by the blood of others, don't they? How does Jesus make peace and reconcile rebellious sinners like you and me? It tells us, doesn't it? What did it take to bring us near? The blood of his cross. His dying for us and our submitting to him bring us into intimate fellowship with him. And so we submit, not begrudgingly, but with gladness and joy, knowing his ways are best. I think of a well-known story of the wife of one of the generals of King Cyrus of Persia was accused of treachery and she was condemned to die. And as soon as her husband realized what was taking place, he rushed into the palace and, and he burst into the, the throne room and he threw himself on the floor before the king. He cried out, O king, take my life instead of hers. Let me die in her place. And Cyrus, by all historical accounts, was noble and extremely sensitive man and he's touched by this offer, and he replies, love like that must not be spoiled by death. And so he gives the husband to, and the wife back to each other, and he lets the wife go free. And as the two are walking away happily, the husband says to the wife, did you notice how kindly the king looked upon us when he gave you the pardon? And the wife replies, I had no eyes for the king. I saw only the man who was willing to die in my place. Jesus wasn't just willing to die in our place. He did it. And so we keep our eyes on him and his word because of who he is and what he's done to get to us and to bring us near. What does Jesus do? In verse 21, Paul says that we were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. In other words, we were rebellious sinners, alienated from our creator. We were his enemies. What did he do? He came to get us. He came to reconcile us. He came to present us without spot or wrinkle at the end of the age. And how? Through his death on a cross, the same place in which he purchased the church that he promised would prevail this evil age. And so you pull all this together. I wish we conclude that Jesus is worthy of first place. Are you convinced of that yet? And he is worthy of our submission as individuals and as a church. And his rule as head must be where we both start and finish in our thinking about polity and everything else. And we should think of it all along the way too. Because not only is he worthy in his person to have first place, he is a ruler who loves and cares about and is among his subjects. So we submit to his rule, but not begrudgingly, rather out of joy and love for our head and husband. Don't you see? that the church is a marked out place where we say to the world, this is a place where Jesus has preeminence. And they can observe it and see that this is true. In the middle of a dark world full of people 
whose passions have preeminence, whose jobs have preeminence, whose bank accounts have preeminence, whose libidos have preeminence, whose consumerism have preeminence, whose hatred have preeminence, whose selfishness have preeminence, whose politics have preeminence. We don't say judgingly, look at them and say, look at you fools. We say, come and see that the Lord is good. And when they do come, they really observe that we mean it. Because we know we worship a God who speaks and who's in heaven and does whatever he pleases. And what pleases him was to come and live and image the invisible God and die to purchase the church as firstborn out of the dead so that one day those who submit to him and give him preeminence can be resurrected out of the dead too. And his headship over the church means that he is not a detached an uncaring ruler, but a loving head that rules with devotion and care. But he does indeed speak. And he means for us to listen to him. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but your name give glory.